Every day, during this great and terrible pause, Cood Street has been calling up readers and book lovers from around the world and asking them how they're coping with these strange times, what they've been reading, what they'd recommend, and what they have coming up. Today I'm joined by the newly minted Hugo Award winner Arcadie Martin, whose fabulous A Memory Called Empire was just awarded Hugo for Best Novel. Arcadie joins me from, well, somewhere in, in North America, somewhere, I assume. Hello, Arcadie. Santa Fe, New Mexico. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico at the moment. <laughs> this is my second I time calling Santa Fe this, then in the last week, so just talking to Daniel Abraham, who would be near you somewhere. There's a lot of us out here, which I'm pretty new to the area. I only moved here less than a year ago and then pandemic. So I haven't met half the people who live in the yeah. local places. Well, this is one of those things where the way I vaguely understand the history of it, and maybe science fiction, particularly right now, is spending too much time looking at its history. But I think it was like Roger Zelazny moved out to out there and then like yeah. people followed. Well, it's Santa Fe has always been an artist community, as far mm -hmm. as I'm aware. I mean, I first came here when I was less than a year old. Um, mm -hmm. My parents or classical musicians were playing in the Santa Fe Chamber Music Festival um, okay. during the summer. And so I spent every summer in New Mexico till I was about 10. Uh, and it's an artist town, artisans, musicians, writers, so, yeah, I'm not surprised that there's been a ton of science fiction people. Uh, and it's so close to Los Alamos. I think there's a bit of cross-pollination there also. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And does it feel a bit, is it good to be sort of having, I guess, to be back kind of in a sense home to somewhere you're from, you know, really know in these kind of crazy times? It's weird is what it is. I mean, I'm from New York City and that's mm -hmm. where my whole family is. And that's what I will always think of as home. But I've lived on I think three continents now and like five countries so moving is something I do a lot of I haven't lived in the southwest before when you're a kid and staying for summers is different um and I really really love it out here but it's very alien still I'm yeah. still learning it and is it yeah, you know, I mean, I'm I'm not quite sure of the status of the the pandemic in, in, in San Antonio but are you locked in shut down and or, or is life fairly normal it's complex um so new mexico as compared to our immediate neighbors arizona and texas has done amazingly well partially because we have a smaller population and partially because we have a pretty kick-ass governor um governor michelle Lujan Grisham, who mm. was very early on lockdown orders has been very stringent about mask wearing um finding businesses that open for indoor dining and like despite the fact that indoor dining is currently not allowed. Um, so we had a nasty spike about a month ago, but things are coming back down again. And while I am still working from home and expect to be working from home probably through the calendar year, I think that as places in the U.S. goes, if you're not in the Northeast, which is doing the best after having yeah. the worst spike, this is a pretty good place to be. Yeah. Okay. And are you able to, to read or to work or to function? I mean, I find a lot of people have found that there's like a fog that comes with all of this where you're just lost with you know, no real idea of where the, what's happening in the future. It's much harder than it was. Um, and I'm frustrated by that. Like, I'm a very... I guess I like having projects and I like finishing things and making things and doing things and the absolute endlessness of time. Currently, I keep saying to people, time is a flat circle and causality doesn't matter. 
Uh, and that's what it feels like. So there's a certain amount of feeling trapped and it's definitely affected my ability to consistently concentrate, which has made me slow down writing wise. And I don't particularly enjoy that and wish it wasn't happening. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully that, that will write itself over time. I mean, what I've found yeah. is talking to people that this is something that you begin to find a rhythm in eventually, even though you can find and lose it. Do you find that you are reading? Are, what, what are you reading at the moment, if you don't mind me asking? Um, I just finished, and this is uh, an arc of Rebecca Roanhorse's Black Sun, which was amazing. Uh, absolutely fantastic. And uh, actually got me like hooked on an epic fantasy, which hasn't happened in years. Yeah. I don't. I used to read a ton of epic fantasy. Like the genre appeals to me very much, but I'd gotten really tired of it and mm -hmm. it hadn't felt fresh. Um, and this was like re-realizing everything I liked about it. Like the, the high drama and the elaborate magical systems and the way that you can do all of the, the fun politics and history stuff. But it's like writing space opera. That's I think why I, might have been actually why I got tired of it was that I was like, why isn't this space opera? <laughs> Whereas, let's face it, space opera is mostly just epic fantasy in space. Yes, I know. I write it. <laughs> There's a um, but I don't know. I like the... There's a certain amount of distress that doing the same kind of questions about um, individuality and, like, physicality that you can do either with magic or with like scientific body mechanics and i find the tension more interesting when it's technological but that's a personal thing mm -hmm. like i it's just what it feels to me <laughs> but you can do the same thing with both systems the only thing i would wonder is whether there are fundamental underpinning practical questions that in a world a bit of world building that science fiction seems to require you to answer that fantasy allows you, if you wish to, to overlook? I think there are definitely choices you can make in a fantasy which are freer choices. Mm -hmm. Like I think of, um, oh, Elizabeth Bear's Range of Ghosts series, mm -hmm. yep. uh, which is a Mongol epic fantasy. And the last epic fantasy I really, really loved before Rebecca Roanhorse's. Um, and that has a system where, depending on what the politics of the area you're in are, the sky is different. Yep. And there is no physical way you can do that. It is pure magic. But it's also a very codified, rule-based system. So to me, it doesn't feel that different. Mm -hmm. um, but it does allow a kind of concretization of symbology that is harder to get at in science fiction. Okay. So you've been reading, you've been turned back to epic fantasy by Rebecca Rowan Horse. Are you reading anything mm -hmm. else at the moment or are you a one book at a time person? I am a one fiction book at a time person, mm -hmm. but I usually have two or three nonfiction books like floating around the house. Um, and I guess most recently I've been on a kick of reading about the electric grid uh, and the history of it in the United States. And um, I read a book called The Grid, uh, which I'm staring at right now. It's by Gretchen Bakke. It's somewhat out of date. It's 
by out of date, I mean it was published in 2016. That's how fast the electric uh, electric power trend is transforming itself right now. But um, one of the things I really enjoyed about reading that book was that she both identified the central problem for modernizing America's electric grid, which is that the grid as built is not at all designed to do anything but work with big centralized fossil fuel power plants and that it's that variability is not something that it is physically capable of coping with in a lot of ways. Um, and that she, having made that statement and proved it, then went to that gorgeous thing that I really love when good journalists or good nonfiction historians and pop fiction do which is to drill down into precise moments where you can encapsulate why it became that way. Um, like she tells stories about the blackout of 2003 in the Northeast, which I remember living through. I was 18 um, that summer. I was living with my grandparents in New York City and I remember almost getting stuck in the subway when the lights went out. And then there was like three days with no power and that was, we had blackouts before then or anything like that. And in this book, what um, Gresham Bucket does is trace that back to an initial transformer fault in Ohio and how that single transformer fault could create a cascade that ended mm -hmm. up with the Northeast blacked out for three days. Wow. It actually reminds me a very great deal of a book called The Bronx is Burning, which is also... Um, and I've lost the author, and I'm just thinking of this off the top of my head. Uh, it's also nonfiction, which is about yeah. the... New York City blackout in the 70s and also about baseball at the same time <laughs> and about the political ambitions of various New York City political figures, which means it's like deeply right up my alley. Um, <laughs> baseball, infrastructure disasters, New York City politics. You could not design a better book for me. <laughs> <laughs> and that one also looks at how human error and small scale human error does cascading infrastructure effects yeah. during um, disasters, how systems are not resilient, are in fact quite brittle and we don't mm. always know where. So yeah. that's something I've been thinking a lot about. So let me ask you this then, you know, sort of you've been reading Rebecca Rowan horse and, and many nonfiction books. What in these times would you recommend people turn to? Do you think it's a time for comfort reading, for uh, challenging reads? Are there particular books that you think that might be that, 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 that attract you at this sort of time? For me, I want things that are not easy but take me out of where I am. Mm -hmm. Like I want to be challenged, but I don't want to be challenged about what I'm being challenged about in my real life. Mm -hmm. Like I have, I know people who've read books about the plague. Yeah. I know people who've gotten into reading a million books. I was like, no. I mean, I love Stephen King and I have reread The Stand many times, but it's going to be a long time before I reread The Stand. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I also have been really enjoying things that are complex, that do require concentration, that pull me out of this world, mm -hmm. that make me think and make me think about difficult things. Um other books that are like that that I've read recently, I am still obsessed with Jeff Vandermeer's um, Dead Astronauts. Yeah. And it's been six months since I read it the first time. And I came back to it about a month ago just to look up a particular passage and ended up rereading the whole thing. Yeah. 
And that is an incredibly difficult book process-wise. Like the experience of reading it is one where you have to decide to read it and allow it to happen to you. Um, it's a kaleidoscope pastiche without a time-based through line, though there are several through lines. Mm -hmm. So it requires intellectual work to follow and it requires emotional work to mm. deal with. Yeah. And oh my God, it's so good. So that kind <laughs> of thing, like I have to work really hard, but it's not about what's going on right now. That's yep. what I've been looking for. Well, then let me ask you, Memory Called Empire has just won the Hugo Award, as we were saying. It's out in the world. It's in good bookshops around the world. What else is happening with you at the moment? What, what What's in, in your publishing universe? So next March, the sequel to A Memory Called Empire comes out. That's called A Desolation Called Peace, and it is the direct sequel. Um, you can think of it as a duology, two sides mm -hmm. of the same coin. Um, so it is more of Mahit's story and more of Three Seagrasses' story and several other people who you haven't met yet and some people who maybe aren't people at all. Um, I'll stop there. Okay. <laughs> the first chapter of it is up on io9. So, yeah. uh, and with the cover. So that's, if you want a preview of it, you can find it there. So that's in March. Yep. And then in August, I don't have a precise date yet, but I think late August of next year, so in about a year, I'll have a novella from Subterranean Press, which is called Rose House and is a locked room architectural murder mystery with an artificial intelligence. Wow. And that one I'm trying to finish right now. It would help if I knew who killed the guy. <laughs> <laughs> He'll turn up. Or they'll turn up. Yeah, somewhere. <laughs> so that's in the immediate future. And then sometime in either late 2022 or early 2023, depending on the vicissitudes of publishing, uh, I'll have another novel with Tor. Fantastic. And that will be called, not a Texcalon novel, a new thing. Um, called Prescribed Burn, which is a arson, water politics, climate change, not near future, but sort of medium future book, Yeah, um, which kind of came out of me being obsessed with Raymond Chandler and this book called City of Quartz um, by Mike Davis, which is a history of Los Angeles. And um, a lot of thinking about electricity and water which where I live and what I do for a living, which is do climate and energy policy for the state of New Mexico, makes me think about a lot. So that book has come out of that. Okay. And let me ask you, because I, I don't want to let you go but without talking about this, even though I admit I didn't forewarn. Memory Called Empire is a space opera. What is it about space opera that grabbed you, uh, you know, as a reader, as a creator? What does it let you do? And do you feel it's changing I feel, I mean, having watched space opera for a long time, it's not quite what it used to. It's it's still the, the core of our genre, but it's not exactly the same. And I'm curious, having mm -hmm. written a Hugo Award-winning space opera, what your thoughts on the subject are. Well, I wrote a space opera because I wanted to be in conversation with a space opera, which mm -hmm. was um, C.J. Cherry's Foreigner books, actually. Um, that's the precise antecedent for memory. Uh, I'm yeah. playing with a lot of the ideas presented there and doing something quite different with them. Um, and I've had that 
sort of brewing since I was about 18, which is when I started reading Chera, um, <laughs> who's one of my favorite authors. Uh, and Cherry writes space opera that is highly intellectual, highly political, mm -hmm. and really character-driven. Um, there are big action set pieces, yeah. but the most important things that happen in those books are things that happen inside her characters' heads. And that's always been something that's appealed to me as a reader. So, it, and not just in space opera, anywhere. Um, yeah, yeah. It's why I like Le Guin. It's why I like... Um, Gene Wolfe, uh, it's why I like, God, Gormenghast, Mervyn Peake. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So in my own work, that was sort of the lineage that I deliberately found myself in. Um, hilariously, people think that I'm responding to Anne Leckie and Ancillary Justice, which I love, but I hadn't <laughs> read um, Ancillary Justice until I was like 95% of the way done with memory. <laughs> Um, yeah. It just turns out that Anne Leckie also likes CJ Cherry, so <laughs> we're kind of playing with the same toys. Um, but on that note, I do think that there's a sort of resurgence in the genre right now, and it's not just me and Anne Leckie and Yoon Ha Lee, um, but also things like The Expanse, which is space opera, but also like a planetary, this, this thing called mm. planetary romance, which is the worst genre category. Yeah. Can we yeah. find another name for that? Because um, it is neither planetary nor a romance. Um, but the idea of a space opera that is more localized to a single system or single planet, but yep, with that yep. kind of technological level of far future, high tech. Yeah. Uh, and I think what we're doing now is we're thinking about some of the basic tropes that have been embedded in space opera, like galactic empire sure. in more complicated ways, ways that are influenced by post-colonial thought by um, abolitionist movements, by social justice, or at least I am. Mm, um, sure. That's what I see in my contemporaries um, as well. And also that space opera is a place like epic fantasy where you can play with complex sociological concepts mm -hmm, sure. almost as well as you can play with complex technological ones if yeah. not better mm. uh, you can set up an entire society to do a particular thing or examine a particular idea yeah. of how a society might work and i think that in what is a consistently difficult time of political turmoil worldwide one of the things that is interesting that we can do with science fiction is to play with other ways the world might work, other ways of people relating to each other than the ones we know about. Yeah. Um, and while you can do this with near future stuff quite well, and Malka Older's Infomocracy books are the perfect example of that. Sure. For me, for someone who's, when I write near future, I always get real nervous because I'm mm -hmm. bad at predicting things. I am no William Gibson. I don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> William Gibson's a hell of a lot better at being William Gibson than I'm ever going to be. Um, but I feel like when you go far future, you have that room to get weird with sociological concepts without having to link them up to where we are now. Mm -hmm. And by getting weird, getting free of the constraints of where yeah. we are now. 
I think as a reader that space opera is the most science fiction kind of science fiction in some ways. It is all of the tropes, symbols, whatever else of science fiction right in your face. Do you think there's something particularly powerful about being able to tell stories that do exactly the kind of things you're talking about in that space, in the central stage of science fiction, rather than in some other way? That's a really interesting question. And it makes me think about why did I, why did I pick this? And I think I picked it genre-wise, because I could have written this story in several other genres. Sure. Uh, changing certain things about it, of course, but it could work in several other genres. Um, I think I picked this because I love science fiction and I mm -hmm. wanted to play with all the science fiction things. Yeah. So yeah, it is where you, it's, it's Star Wars, except you can make the politics work better um, <laughs> or be complicated. <laughs> and I love that stuff. I, that's the kind of science fiction I've been into since I was tiny. And there's and there is something wonderful about being able to take control of the thing, have your chance at, at, at the controls of the thing that you loved when you were young. Yeah. So and see how fast this thing can go, basically. <laughs> well, it, it, it's an old machine, but it's got some engines on it, you know. <laughs> well, you certainly you certainly gave them a blast with a memory called Empire, and I'm looking forward to Desolation <laughs> called you. Peace. But for the moment, Arcady Martin, thank you so much for making time to talk to me. That I genuinely appreciate it. This was lovely. Thanks so much for having me.